You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Good evening. Welcome to our Good Friday service. And for those of you joining us online, we're so glad you would join us. As we come together as, as Christians, as believers, to remind ourselves and remember what makes this day good, why we, we call a day like the death of Jesus good. And this day, Good Friday, is literally the turning point of human history. Christ hung on a tree, his bloody and his brutal death, and his burial hangs over everything. For the last 2,000 years, it's been the defining event of humanity. That's why we have a cross on this building that hangs high above everything else. Every nation and people and culture was forever changed by the atoning work of Jesus. And so friends, we gather tonight to gaze and consider the most wondrous moment where God married together his justice and his love. Where we are reminded that Jesus suffered infinite wrath with no amount of mercy so that you and I would have infinite mercy with no amount of wrath. And Good Friday picks up right in the heart of Jesus' purpose. You know, if you read the Gospel of John, time and time again, he says this phrase, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. And, you know, it kind of gets a little perplexing. What is he referring to? And he knew the, the very crux, the very central reason he was coming was to go to the cross. He was set upon it. He was dead set upon it from the moment his ministry began. It was his sole focus and ambition. The Gospel of John puts such primacy on the crucifixion narrative that over half the book is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And so I want us to look at a few verses out of the Gospel of John, starting in John 19, uh, verse 17. And it says this, it says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, pause there for a second. We already know that Jesus has experienced a brutal beating, 40 lashes where his flesh has been ripped off of his body and he's already suffered immensely. A sleepless night, a crown of thorns pressed upon his head till blood runs down his face. And now he's made to carry his own cross and timber was expensive in those days, so this was likely a used cross already with some blood stains upon it. So Jesus goes to the place of skull, or as we even call it, Calvary, and they crucify him, verse 18. Him along with two others, one at each side and Jesus in the middle. They take him out of the city and they bring him to the outskirts, a place where everyone could watch. This was a public spectacle. This was a moment of humiliation and embarrassment. This was meant to intimidate and to suppress. The Roman rulers wanted to send a message, what happens to people who step out of line. And so as Jesus is being humiliated, he is also suffering the most excruciating death you could imagine. How excruciating? Well, we had to invent that very word. Excruciating means out of the cross. It was a word we had to come up with to, to define what the pain was actually like to be crucified. And there Jesus would also be humiliated as people mocked him 
and likely spit upon him and called him names. Imagine that. And Jesus just hung there. Verse 19, Pilate had noticed and prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written Aramaic, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So Pilate, who's in charge of Rome, who condemns Jesus to crucifixion, he decides to mock the Jewish leaders by saying, this is your king, right? This is the best you guys got. And all together, Pilate had no idea in the sovereignty and providence of God, he was speaking actually truth, that this was the king of the Jews, that this was the king of the world. But imagine for Pilate in that moment what he must have thought as he saw Jesus being crucified. He probably had to think to himself something along the lines of crisis averted, insurrection over, it's finished. Just another day at the office. Verse 21, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered them, I have written what I have written. The Jewish leaders still as constantly missing and resisting the ministry of Jesus up to the very end are still blinded to the true identity and nature of who Jesus was. And so what do they do in opposition? They stand there and they still resist and they push back and say, that's not our king. That's not our savior. But in their heart of hearts, as they watch Jesus get crucified, there had to be something in their hearts where they go, well, great, it is finished. Finally, we got rid of that troublemaker. We got rid of that guy who was challenging for our authority, that guy that constantly seemed to out-debate us and put us in those, 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 those philosophical quandaries. Glad that's over, it's, it's finished. In verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one of them with undergarments remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They divided the clothes among them and cast lots for his garment. So this is what the soldiers did. You got to think for the soldiers, this is just another day at the office. These guys are professional executors, and they have a chance to make a quick buck. They get to keep the spoils of whatever is left over after their work is done. And also, they didn't even know that they're part of this bigger story as well, where God is using them in his providence to fulfill another prophecy about the identity of Jesus. See, friends, in that very moment, we are still part of this grand narrative, this grand story that makes up the Bible. Over 400 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled throughout his life, and here he is fulfilling another prophecy as he hangs on a cross because God the Father has ordained this very moment to happen. And here we are seeing all of this coherent story come together, and the cross is the hinge of every bit of it. But imagine the soldiers, what they must have been thinking to themselves. Long day at the office, Another day of executions, another day of crucifixions. I must have been thinking something like, my shift's over. It's finished. I can go home. 
Verse 25, near the cross stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now put yourself in the shoes of Mary for a moment. You're watching your son be brutally beaten. You're watching your son carry a cross out to Golgotha. And then you watch nails put through his wrists and you watch him hung up on a cross while people laugh at him and mock him and spit upon him. You must think that Mary's heart must have been crying out to God, oh God, when will this be finished? Please God, will this be finished? And later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine and vinegar was there, so they soaked up a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now mind you, in that moment, once again, we have professional executioners. These Roman soldiers, this was their daily occupation. And so as we are told in the Gospel of Luke, they want to make sure their job's done well. So one of the soldiers would run a spear through the side of Jesus, which would puncture his heart sack. And in that we know that Jesus died not only literally, but also metaphorically of a broken heart as he took on a finishing work. It is finished. Think about what every person was, thought was being brought to completion on Good Friday. The soldiers, once again, it's just another day at the office. It's finished. I guess we can go home. The crowd thinking, oh, the, uh, the entertainment, this hideous entertainment spectacle is over. I guess it's finished. We should go home. Peter and the disciples, imagine for them, after three years of fellowship and ministry with Jesus, their desperation and even their fear probably drove them to a place of going, I can't believe it's finished. And the priest coming around to seeing that their power has been returned to them are going, it's finished now. But what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? What did Jesus mean? As everyone's looking at it from their vantage point, what's the vantage point of Jesus? In just a few moments, I want to look at that with you. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant for us to realize that the Father's world rescue plan had been completed. That the very mission, the very purpose that Jesus came to accomplish and fulfill had now been done. The completed work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, that he was sent to be the Messiah. He was sent to be the one who would make atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus would offer his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. Friends, this is known as the atonement. 
In a narrow sense, this is, this is thought of as Jesus dying for, for our sins, that he's taking on our sins, and we, 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 we're, he's getting the punishment that we deserve, and we get his righteousness. Atonement's defined as making amends and satisfying a wrong. Making amends and satisfying a wrong. Now I want to pause here for a moment because often when we read the story of Good Friday, we often think, how is that still relevant for us today? It's been 2,000 years. This is an ancient story. This is a barbaric culture. We don't practice crucifixions anymore. We don't make people suffer in that manner or fashion anymore. Why do we really need an atonement? And friends, I would argue that, that when I look around at our world today, when I think about the moment that you and I exist in right now, we live in a nation, we live in a culture, we live in a time that is desperate for atonement. We search everywhere, high and low, for an atonement. All around you and me, every day, especially in these last couple of years in the culture that we live in, swirls significant conversations, serves, uh, swells uh, particular frustrations, there, our world is filled with tensions. It is a divided world that you and I live in, and constantly the core is constantly the world around us is trying to figure out how do we put things right again? How can we atone for injustices? How can we atone for sins? What do we do when people do sin? What do we do with injustices? Our culture is desperately flailing around and haunted by an innate sense of justice. And why? Because you and me were made in God's image. We are image bearers and we desire, we have, a, we have an appetite for justice. And we know that there's something wrong with this world. We know that things have gone wrong in this world. And here are the questions that our world, our culture, our leaders often are not prepared to answer, but Jesus is. What do you do with sin? You can't legislate that. There'll be no policy that solves that. What do you do with evil? What do you do with injustice? Our want to solve these problems is good. In fact, it continues to reflect that you and I are image bearers, that we have an appetite, we have a desire for justice as well. The problem is, is because we are fallen, because you and I also are broken and we also have committed evil, our acts of justice are never carried out in the perfect way that God's are. Our justice is not always impartial or fair, is it, friends? We can go too far, or maybe we haven't gone far enough. Maybe our justice was too swift, or maybe it took too long. Maybe someone got way more justice than we thought they deserved, or they didn't get enough. And what happens when justice is not meted out, when justice is not dispensed or delivered in the way that you or I would want? We might get bitter or resentful. Or even far worse, we slip into places of despair and despondency and resentment and vengeance. Friends, if you and I are honest, we are not very good at handling justice rightly. We're not very good at atonement. And so that's why we gather, because there actually is one who is good at atonement. One who is able to perfectly reconcile two things that the world has never been able to bring together in perfect harmony, justice and mercy. 
Can you imagine those two things being brought together in perfect harmony? See, Jesus is so countercultural, friends. He has the same zeal for justice that you and I do, but he also provides the forgiveness that we never can. So what do we do without Jesus? We demand atonement. We demand a sacrifice. We demand a payment. And all the while, the cross hangs over human history, beckoning us, calling us, pleading with us not to seek our own atonement projects, but rather to realize that Jesus has come on this Good Friday to atone for the sins of the world, to dispense justice in a perfect way, in a way that you and I never could. There are two parts of this. I'll be really quick with it that I want us to see. The first part is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's a big theological word. And Ariel read the passage for us out of Isaiah 53, but Isaiah 53, five says this. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Friends, I, I know no one wants to talk about this. I know this is not popular on maybe late night cable, but here's the truth. Look right at me. God hates sin. He hates sin. Exodus 32 says this, he burns with a white hot wrath and rage against sin. He hates it. But his anger is not like mine. His anger is not like yours. John Stott puts it this way, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger, often injured vanity or pride or ego, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. When God looks around at the world, what makes him so angry, what makes him so wrath-filled about sin is that it's destroying the thing that he loves the most. It's destroying his glory as it's bared and brought about and demonstrated through you and me as image bearers. This is why John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel of John begins Jesus' ministry with beckoning out and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes away the sins of the world. Think about that. Jesus came not so that, that, that you and I could, could exist in this own uh, self-made atonement project, but rather to take our sins away from us so that I wouldn't have to die for my sins, so that our relationships wouldn't have to die from sins, so that our culture, our country, our community would not have to die from sins because Jesus has already died for them. And he also frees us from guilt and from condemnation. Friends, this is such good news. It changes everything. It changes everything about our relationships and the world that we live in. John Stott also says this, uh, such a great quote that sums it up. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man claims privileges that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to God to man alone. By his wounds, we have been healed, friends. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Jesus takes all of God's wrath. So when you think about, does God have wrath left for me? Friends, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that cup is bone dry. There is no more wrath. There is no condemnation left for you. The guilt has been removed. You're a new creation in Christ. Isn't that good news? Which leads us to the other thing that Jesus accomplishes on the cross that I want us to see, he also brings us reconciliation and restoration. Reconciliation and restoration. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says this. He says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch that? So, so here's the amazing deal. Here's the amazing reality of what's going on on Good Friday, on the cross, as Jesus is completing the atonement, is he not only takes our guilt, he not only takes our sin, but then he gives us his righteousness. It's not that we just get back to zero in the eyes of God, but rather we get back to this place where God sees us with astounding love and mercy. He brings us in, he adopts us, and he calls us sons and daughters. Why does he do this? Well, he closes us. He closes us with, with a new righteousness. Because, friends, one of the, the, the effects of the fall, one of the realities that you and I live with every day is this, this fig leaf reality that's been haunting humanity since Adam and Eve blew it in the garden. And you and I, we can't escape the reality that we are standing at times stark naked before God. And it's no use for us to try to cover up like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Our attempts at self-justification our attempts to try to impress God or earn something or to improve ourselves are really just fig leaves. And so we come and we acknowledge that we fully need the righteousness of God. Every shameful thought you've ever had, every heinous deed you've ever done, every wicked act, every bitter lie, every stumble you've ever committed, every foolish fantasy, every petty grudge you've ever held, every rebellious moment you've ever had in your heart and in your actions, those are covered by the cross. And now when God looks at you, he sees my son, my daughter, my child. On the cross, on that Good Friday, Jesus became the most grotesque, ugly, and hideous thing in the history of the world. Think about that. Jesus was the most grotesque, hideous, ugly thing in the world is they took upon all sin. And you and I were given absolute perfection, purity, and beauty. You know, Rodney opened up a second ago and he just said, what does that look like for us to hear these truths in a way that they land deeply in our soul? And I I think that's such a good question for us to ask in a moment like this, because I think especially if you're a Christian, these are truths that you've been hearing your whole life, but I want, you to, I want you to think about this for a second. You need to know that in the depths of your soul that Jesus took names to the cross. Jesus took names to the cross. 
Sometimes I think it can be very easy to just go, well, Jesus died for the world, or Jesus died for humanity, or Jesus died for people. And that's true, but he didn't just die for the broad category of people. He didn't die for the possibility or the potentiality that you could be saved, or so that you would have an opportunity to be saved, or so that you would have an offer to be saved, but that you would definitively be saved. That he knew your name. He died for moms, he died for dads, he died for brothers and sisters and cousins and the people that are far from God that you work with and that you know. He took names to the cross. Jesus died for you. And when he hung on that cross, he was dying for you. He died for names. You know, isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve hid behind a tree naked and covered in shame. And Jesus hung on a tree, naked to conquer shame. He was reversing the curse that set upon you and me in all of human history. The other incredible, beautiful, and terrifying thing about the cross is that all of us have been outed there. We love to think that we're good at keeping secrets that there's something deep down that you've done in your past or in your life or somewhere along the way that if you think if people found out, you would be the scapegoat, you would be canceled, you would be banished from community and sent out, that you would no longer be loved. But at the cross, every single one of us was outed. Every single one of us was exposed. Every single one of us was put on trial. So the question really comes down to, are you gonna continue on in your own self-reclamation atonement project? Or will you trust in the finished work of Jesus, knowing that he died for you, that he atoned for your sins, that he gave you his righteousness? So how are you gonna respond? How are you gonna respond? Going all the way back to the beginning of our story, Look at the four different responses we saw. The soldiers on that day as they're crucifying Jesus and they're just carrying out orders and it feels like another mundane day at the office. And Pilate, who in some ways found this whole thing to be a hassle, he just didn't want it to get out of control. He just wanted to get on with the rest of his life. He looked at Jesus with indifference and apathy. And maybe that's you. I don't know, maybe you came tonight, but you still find yourself with indifference and apathy. Maybe you're joining us online, and when you think about the cross of Christ, when you think about the good news of the gospel, there's just a sense of apathy and indifference. But friends, there is no neutrality on the day of judgment. When you and I stand before God, when you and I, when we breathe our last breath and we stand before our maker, when we stand before God, there's no apathy allowed. When we meet Jesus again, King Jesus face to face, it'll either be for our ruination or our restoration. So the choice becomes really clear for you and I because every single one of us will have a relationship with Jesus. It's just a matter of will it be one of forgiveness or will it be one of wrath? And friends, he doesn't want any of you to perish. If you're hearing the words of my mouth right now, I can guarantee you that God wants you to know him, that he wants you to be saved, 
And so don't respond with indifference. Don't respond with an apathy. Don't think you can just go about your life because we're talking about the God of the universe who reigns and rules over all. John Stott said this. He said, we may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his. For there is blood on our hands. And before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it done as something by us. Maybe for some of you in this room, you identify a lot more with the Jewish leaders. There's many in our culture, as statistics are beginning to show, that find themselves in a little bit more of an opposition posture or resistant to the claims of Jesus, to the idea that Jesus is Lord. I mean, think about the Jewish leaders. So much so, Jesus is already being crucified, suffering the most humiliating death. And in verse 21, they're still like, don't write that sign about him. It was the least of Jesus' problems. But there was such resistance and such opposition. And friend, I would just, I would beg you, I would implore you, just surrender. Just give your life to Jesus. He's good, he's sweet, he's gentle, he's kind. So much so that he would lay down his life for you. Have you ever had a friend like that? Have you ever heard of a God like that? One who would lay down their life for you? Or maybe, maybe, and this is the right posture that we would come in here tonight responding like John and the women with a deep sense of weeping and surrender. A sense of anguish. A sense of saying, I realize what God's done for me. I realize what Jesus has done on the cross. I realize that he's paid a debt that I could never pay. I realize that he's atoned for my sin, that the work is finished, that I can throw all of my life upon Christ and be saved. And I want to surrender everything to him with deep devotion and live a life of gratitude and glory to King Jesus. Think about this for a second. This is the type of God that I'm speaking about. I'm not talking about a God who, who lords his authority over you. I'm talking about the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. Jesus was stripped naked so that we might be clothed. Jesus went hungry so that we might be fed. Jesus was despised so that we might be celebrated. Jesus went blind so that you and I might see. Jesus went deaf so that we might hear. Jesus was made lame so that you and I might walk. Jesus lost his voice so that we may lift ours. Jesus was cast into darkness so that we may live in the light. Jesus was broken so that you would be made whole. Jesus was made sick so that you and I would be made healthy. Jesus descended into poverty so that we would have eternal riches. Jesus was thrown outside the city so that we would be brought in. Jesus was spit upon so that we might be spoken to by God. Jesus was kicked out so that we might be carried. Jesus was wounded so that we might be healed. 
Jesus' feet were crushed so that we might walk. Jesus was put to sleep so that we might come awake. And Jesus was put to death so that we might live. Would you pray with me? God, you've been so kind to us. When we consider, when we think about the cross, it it feels so otherworldly. What kind of God would lay down his life for us? you would. Your love and your compassion and your grace for us knows no bounds. So Lord, as, as men and women, as we sit here even right now and we, we, we meditate on your glory, on the goodness you showed us, would you just make the cross really big in our hearts, those places too where we're still holding on to our self-atonement project, or maybe we're responding in a way of opposition or a way of apathy, would you just break us, Lord? Would you give us hearts to believe in fresh and new and powerful ways that it is finished? That that there is no more wrath, that when you look upon us, you have love, that there's grace, that there's mercy. God, what made this Friday so good is that you came down and you took all the punishment and we got you. That's the best news the world has ever heard. I pray these things in your name. Amen.